This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The bat might not be one of the animals that comes to mind when thinking about Mississippi wildlife, such as deer or catfish, but Mississippi's home to 15 types of bats that play a significant role in Mississippi's ecosystem. So today we'll welcome Caitlin Cross from the Museum of Natural Science to talk about the role of the bat, answer any questions you might have about these winged mammals, and share the details about the upcoming Park After Dark event. Join our conversation this morning. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you have to miss in uh, Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. Hope to have Dr. Major on the line eventually, but have not been able to get in touch with him at his clinic, uh, so we'll keep uh, monitoring that situation. So hold off on the pet questions for now, but we do have plenty to talk about. So good morning, Libby. What are you seeing around your front yard these days? Good morning. Uh, continuing to enjoy my woodpeckers, particularly my peleated woodpeckers. And um, I've been, I guess, since, remember last week we talked about spiders. So that's uh, gotten me interested in all the little invertebrates around the place. And um, got some really good... Um, up close communication and um, forgot to take pictures though of a, a great praying mantis that was just praying mantis that was out um, along the door frame catching bugs I'm sure around um, my uh, quilting studio so I was glad to see that and hope that she lays her egg case in the garden where they're um, really a very beneficial spider to have around and I've always thought good luck so I was glad to see that seeing uh, stick insects this is it, everything is kind of at its maximum size a lot of these insects or any or invertebrates the spiders particularly um, many of them just live the one year mm-hmm. and so they're at their maximum size right now which means it's the best time to find them so it's a good time to um, get some final looks at your spiders and get in the I guess a great Halloween mood and now today we'll be talking about um, other Halloween connected animals bats you know spiders and bats I suppose are things that people were more likely to see in the fall is why they got connected I, I don't maybe some people think they're creepy I've always liked both of them enough not to really think about that side of it oh and I have one more announcement um, Robin Whitfield called about um, the Leetart Natural Area. She's been a guest on our show mm-hmm. two or three times, and they're doing a, a kind of a different kind of Halloween thing that I hope um, I'll get to attend this coming Saturday from 3 o'clock to 8 o'clock. So it starts before dark. Uh, they call it the Enchanted Forest, and let's see. Her advertisements say that they have... Um, migrating dragons 
and trolls and all kinds of cool things in the forest. So I think it's worth us going to check out. And if you have any little goblins or witches or monsters or anybody that needs to wear their Halloween costume one more time, uh, Saturday would be a good time to go do that. And um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about Park After Dark in LaFleur's Bluff State Park for people that are in the Jackson area. Caitlin's got details on that, but um, I'm just anxious to hear more about bats. Well, before we get into that, uh, Caitlin, if you would, to share some details on the upcoming Park After Dark event. So the Park After Dark is a joint um, event with the Mississippi Children's Museum and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It'll be tomorrow night from 530 to 830. Tickets can be purchased at both museums, and we have our newly opened spotter, the Otter Trail, that connects to both the museums right across from the playground, and both will be open, and plenty and plenty of treats will be all uh, ready to be given out. So that's a Friday, what is the date, October 28th? Yes. Okay. Um, very good. So, um, you know, a lot of people like to dress their pets up. Uh, in costumes for Halloween. I'm, I'm, every picture I've ever seen of a pet dressed up in a costume, to me, the pet does not look very happy. Uh, but if you do, we've got a couple of things to think about when you're choosing uh, costumes for your pets. Uh, look at the costume. Make sure it doesn't have small, dangly, or easily chewed off pieces that they could choke on. I know if that would be the case, my cat would certainly uh, probably attack his own <laughs> costume. Um, so yeah, make sure that, you know, and again, make sure it fits comfortably, that sort of thing. I, I would think a hat might be something that could potentially lead to trouble if it gets, you know, shifted around or whatever. But, uh, you know, again, you know your pet, so try to be safe uh, with uh, choosing a uh, costume. Uh, makeup or face paint can be harmful. Paints could potentially irritate the skin of your pet and maybe eaten. Even makeup that's non-toxic could cause stomach aches or worse. And again, I... I I can't imagine people dying their pet for something, but again, you know, uh, not, not me, but I guess other people enjoy that. And a reminder, uh, treats are strictly for trick-or-treaters, chocolate in all forms, especially dark or baking chocolate can be dangerous for dogs and cats. You know, I guess not surprisingly, those are almost the exact rules I read for small children. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting, but that's avoid, true. Avoid right. hats and masks right, that will right. poke them in the eye or um, uh, impede their vision and don't put a lot of um, makeup on them unless they're old enough to really know how to deal with that. You don't want them licking it off, I guess. Yes, that, that, yeah. that's a good point, but that's true. These can also work for, you know, your small children, mm-hmm. so... Uh, Especially the costume thing. I think, you know, again, young kids do like to put things in their mouth and experiment and that sort of thing. So make sure that you feel safe. And I think if you buy, I guess on homemade costumes, you want to think about that. If you buy something, obviously, I think it's been safety tested. Uh, but it certainly is uh, something to keep in mind. And, you know, I read online that if you're giving out candy, you should only give out the miniature and not full-size candy bars. And the reason is, according to this article online, you don't want to show up your neighbor. You know, So if, oh. if the neighbor's giving the little ones and you're giving the full one, then you know that might cause strife in the neighborhood, I guess. And those parents that want the kids to go to sleep that night will probably <laughs> appreciate you not giving them too big a treat. We're talking about the bats, their benefits to the environment, where they're found, and more. 
Believe it or not, somebody listening right now probably has bats in their attic. If that's you, email animals at mpbonline.org. Creature Comforts, Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Caitlin Cross from the Museum of Natural Science. She's here to talk about the bats that call Mississippi home, 15 different species, in fact. Before we jump into things, let's talk to John, who's calling in from Ridgeland. Good morning, John. You're in the air with us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm calling uh, you from the magnificent Chateau Ridgeland retirement <laughs> community for extraordinarily interesting people. Yourself included. I'd like to, well, thank you. I'd like uh, to mention two things that I, I, I would like to hear the expert who I know uh, maybe explicate a bit. The first has to do with the ability of some moths to actually jam the remarkable sonars of bats in a way that always reminded me of night fighter, night fighter combat between the Luftwaffe and the Brits over Germany in World War II. How many moths do, in fact, have this radar, or I should say sonar, jamming ability? And the second thing... Could she explicate a little bit on the remarkable ability of bats to withstand viruses and thereby act as reservoirs for certain viruses, including you-know-what? Thank you. All right, uh, John, good to hear from you. Uh, So, Caitlin, let's take the first one. Do you know about these uh, sonar jamming moths? Yeah, so uh, there's been an arms race between moths and bats. So bats love night uh, flying moths. They're quite delicious, and they're really good at finding things at night. But moths have developed different ways of combating that. One of the things is having an extra filament at the bottom of their wings, which can dampen the uh, echolocations of sonar. Another is they can actually detect when the um, bat is calling out, they have pores within their body. And this is what Mr. Davis had told me about. So they can tell when a bat is flying nearby, and then they'll turn on those dampers, and then the bat can no longer find the moth. Hmm. It disappeared. It's completely extraordinary. That's that's interesting, and I'm, and I'm sure evolutionary-wise, the bats are, are trying to counter that somehow, but that's, uh, that's interesting, and that's good good for the moths to try to to avoid uh, being a, a meal, I guess. Uh, and do bats, uh, are they resistant to viruses? So bats have a higher uh, body temperature. So that kind of burns off certain viruses. So they can um, become susceptible to them but or harbor them as vectors and not actually die from them. And then that could actually cause them the virus to mutate and then spread to a different mammal that's susceptible. So bats have been known to harbor coronaviruses. And so that's kind of where the thought process of where our current pandemic happened. It started out with a bat and then spread. Uh, But there are viruses like rabies, which they can carry, but they are susceptible to it. So then they do die from it. 
We're going to be visiting with uh, Caitlin throughout the hour talking about bats. So if you have a question for us, you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Also have Dr. Major on the line with us. So if you have a pet question, you can call in. And Dr. Major, in the first part of the show, we talked a little bit about uh, safety for pets and Halloween. Talked about making sure there's nothing dangling or loose on their costume that they might get a hold of. Uh, or um, um, the, not uh, using face paints or dyes and that sort of thing, and then talked about chocolate. Uh, anything else that comes to mind that uh, we want to think about? I guess maybe if you have a skittish pet, what what might could you do in terms of a lot of people tromping in and out of your house looking for candy? Gosh, that's a great question. Uh, I would say, that first of all, it's some of the pets may be better to uh, put away in another room so they won't be so excited. Uh, you know, at, with people coming to the door after candy, uh, chocolate is always an issue. Uh, we've had situations where someone put a bowl of their trick-or-treat candy on the uh, coffee table or somewhere like that, and the dog would eat the whole thing, including the wrappers. So be, just be aware that uh, our pets do not need to eat uh, candy or chocolate especially. Uh, as far as costumes, uh, there's some really neat costumes for our dogs, and just make sure that they fit well. Uh, and I've seen some really, really, uh, what shall I say, trendy costumes uh, that that should uh, make everybody smile. But most of the dogs like them. Not all of them will, so you know your pet. And uh, if it's just really too much for it, I definitely would not uh, pursue it. But as you said, make sure that the fit is right, that they're not too tight or, or kind of binding them anywhere, and, and uh, maybe keep things away from, from their head. We were talking earlier about, I thought, you know, the idea of a hat, if you had something like that, it might kind of slip and get in the way. So uh, any other thoughts on, on costumes? Well, I've seen some hoodies that uh, worked real well but wouldn't wouldn't restrict, uh, any, you know, wearing that. Uh, I think probably the main thing is try it out before before you go trick-or-treating or taking the puppy out or cat out. Some cats will actually wear costumes, but that's more the exception. It's uh, usually temporary. You might get a good photo op, but then the cat's going to do something with it and take it off. So be careful that you don't have anything too too restrictive. You know, I, uh, sort of a side note here, I have a picture that I used have used on sort of a Christmas card for years because it was one of the few times I could actually – uh, pick up the cat near the Christmas tree, have him and me both looking at the camera at the same time. And so I figured, you know, the chances of getting that again were slim to none. So I recycle it every year. So that's uh... – <laughs> so, yeah, I think your dogs Very might good. be a little more patient when it comes to costumes and, and such than cats would be. And quite frankly, some some of the dogs may need some tranquilizer sort of thing prior to, uh, you know, having trick-or-treaters come around because – some do get very annoyed at the doorbell ringing. Uh, kids or adults uh, on the front porch knocking on the door, making a lot of noise. And that can be an issue with some dogs. So just be aware. And you know your, you know your pets. So I would say that some could either be put away in a kennel or could be uh, tranquilized somewhat. All right. Very good. We've got another caller on the line. Let's uh, say good morning now to Sue, who calls us in from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I'd like to ask your experts there a question about bats because um, I've always noticed that bats and dogs and maybe bears have the same snouty look. I mean, they look familiar. They look alike. And I'm wondering which 
mammalian family it's are bats most closely related to so bats are more closely related to primates uh than they are related to our other carnivores um so dogs and bears have a really good sense of smell, and that's how um, they can detect their prey. Bats do have a good sense of smell, but not that's not how they search for their prey. They only use that uh, necessarily to find, like a mother finding her young. She can detect that through smell and for sound. Um, and it also depends on the bat. Uh, we have over 1,400 species of bats known worldwide, and every one of their faces is different. Um, some other no- uh, noses are more painted, uh, pointed forward, and some are diverted to the side, which you don't kind of see that with dogs. Dogs are going to be, uh, and bears are going to be pointed forward because they're using that to follow a trail or such. Um, I hope that answers your question. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, so- I, I bet Sue's thinking about those flying foxes, the mm. big bats, and they really do look like dogs. Yes, they yeah. do. Flying puppies. Pu- um, yeah. Sky puppies. We call <laughs> yeah. them that. Uh, and, I mean, they're looking for fruit. So that's another. Fruit is pretty fragrant. Um, All right, Sue, always good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest today, Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talking about bats. So, Caitlin, tell us uh, a little about your background and and how you got interested in bats. So it's actually funny. Um, I first wanted to be a veterinarian, and then I went to college, and I decided I wanted to do aquaculture. But then I started volunteering with my predecessor, Kathy Shelton, and she showed me the amazing world of bats. I was hooked. We went to our first culvert, and I saw these tiny little bats, tricolor bats, our smallest bats, and they were just hanging on by this little furry foot, and the size of color of a McDonald's chicken nuggets. I was like, here we are, all these flying little chicken nuggets around. And after that, I was like, I have to work with bats. Um, I'm sorry, fish, you're all probably great, <laughs> but mammals, they just sucked me in. Um, so we have 15 different species of bats in Mississippi. Give us an idea maybe of size from maybe the small chicken nugget to, to larger. So a tricolored bat, if you're going to do uh, scrunched up from butt to nose, it can be about inch to two inch. And then you have a big brown bat. That's one of our largest species of bat, uh, that and hoary bat. And they're more like four to five inches. And they can have a wingspan over a foot. It's still small compared to flying foxes that you probably see around the internet or at zoos, but those are still a pretty big bat. And uh, imagine that flying through a crowded forest. So uh, when we talk about the the bat species here in Mississippi, uh, what is the health of the bat population? So uh, we have some really common species that are adapted to human environments, and those are doing great. But then we have some species that are really reliant on forests. So with uh, habitat degradation and loss, those species are declining. Uh, And right now, um, so this is a project I work on, is studying white-nose syndrome. And white-nose syndrome has been wiping out millions of species of bats. And it is an invasive fungus that uh, did not originate here. And uh, first documentation was in 2006 in New York, and it has spread to the west coast of the United States and into Canada. And at some sites in the northeast, uh, a cave that used to have tens of thousands of bats has no bats anymore. Uh, It's very lethal. We do have it here in Mississippi. Uh, The fungus is prevalent in uh, 10 counties, and this past winter was the first time I saw a bat 
with the actual fungus growth on it. So the first time we have noticed the syndrome. So that was the first time also it was noted in a culvert. So up to now it's been in caves and mines. Uh, we didn't think that culverts could inhabit this fungus, it would be suitable. But now Mississippi and Georgia have detected it in culverts. So we're looking to see how this will manifest over time. If it's going to be problematic, do we need to do conservation measures? Do we need to implement all this research that's been done on fungicides or UV lights to inoculate these culverts? So I guess it's important as you research tr ways to combat the, the fungus that you keep track of where it is so that if there is some sort of, you know, something that might help the situation, you'll know kind of maybe where to concentrate your efforts. Absolutely. Uh, we've got another caller on the line. So now we'll say good morning to Fletch, who calls in from Jackson. Fletch, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, got a question. Do bats mainly hang upside down because they're usually in a cave? Um, and what percentage of bats do not live in a cave if there are those that really never go in? Good question. So all bats hang upside down. And the reason why is, one, uh, if they're hanging up on the ceiling of something, if they're hanging uh, right side up, then they can't see any predators that um, might sneak up on them. You know, raccoons really love to eat bats. And another thing is, all our bats need to swoop to uh, generate lift. Um, for the most part, if the one gets stranded on the ground, it does, it's not strong enough to uh, fly off or to take off from the ground. So they need to climb up high enough so when they drop, they generate lift. So that's another reason why they hang upside down. And we do have caves here in Mississippi. We only have two species here that inhabit caves. So that leaves a lot of other species that don't. So they'll use forests instead. That's their primary natural habitat is forests. And all of our bats will inhabit forests. We just have ones that also use caves. Even then, though, they oh, look for I, a hollow tree, don't they? Yeah, yeah, so they'll use dead and dying trees, also referred to as snags. Or you have species, um, or hairy-tailed bats, that will hang from a limb and mimic a leaf. All right, Fletch, uh, thanks for the call. So, uh, Caitlin, I've heard that bats eat uh, insects, uh, mosquitoes included, which is always <laughs> a good thing. Is that primarily their diet? Mosquitoes are tiny. And you have a bat that's flying around um, and searching for prey at night. So you got to think about what's actually flying at night. Yes, we do have mosquitoes, but we also have bigger insects, tastier insects and more energetically efficient insects. So there's going to be beetles and moss. And these are also agricultural pests, too. So it's beneficial to have bats out there eating those bigger things. Yes, they do eat mosquitoes. They can eat up their body uh, weight at night. Uh, if you have a pregnant bat or a nursing bat, she's going to eat even more to combat the energy she's lost uh, lactating and raising those babies. And uh, how do they locate and capture insects? They use echolocation. Um, so they can see, but at night, you know, visually you're restricted there. So they uh, emit a very loud, it's actually some species, it's so loud that they actually detach their eardrums as they make the call and reattach it when the call echoes back. And this oh. is all within a millisecond. <laughs> so it's, it's, bats are extraordinary, right? <laughs> you see why I didn't stick with fish. Anyways, uh, so they're making this loud call, and it's usually at uh, a frequency we cannot hear. 
I mean, the bats that were at the lowest frequency, sometimes if you have young enough ears or say you didn't listen to music so loud, you could still hear them, but for the most part, we cannot hear them. It's a frequency we cannot hear. So they're uh, making that call out loud as they can to hear that faint echo coming back. And some bats have actually adapted their ears. So we have raffinous speaker bats. They have really big ears because their call is actually quiet. They're known as whisper bats. And they're actually really hard to detect if you're doing acoustic monitors because of that. Uh, so you have to get you have to put out a lot of them to uh, increase your chance of hearing them. So they're going to do a softer call. But they're looking for those moths. So they're calling quietly so the moth doesn't know. They're very, very clever in that way. So with the echolocation and they send out the thing and get information back as they pursue their prey, do they keep, is it a keep, uh, an ongoing thing? Yeah, so we're talking, again, milliseconds. So we have, if you look at their sonogram of a call, a recording, so you have a search face, they're just calling out, like, what's out here, what's out here? And then if they detect something, your their calls, it kind of gets more excited, more energy, and we call that approach phase. And then you can actually see when they actually catch a buds, a bug gets a little fuzzy on there, and that's a feeding buzz, and then they keep going. So it's constant. I mean, they got to eat a lot of bugs to eat their weight at night. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for the hour, Caitlin Cross, biologist at the Museum of Natural Science, talking about bats today. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to uh, the podcast using your preferred podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, and then you can listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. If you want to join our conversation, you can always email us at animals at mpbonline.org. So, Caitlin, before we get to the phone lines, uh, if you encounter a bat, uh, what is the best thing to do? And then also maybe if you find some in your home and are trying to remove them. So first, a bat encounter, what would you recommend someone do? Well, never touch a bat barehanded. Even though less than 1% of bats have rabies, it is still um, something to think about. I mean, this is a mammal. It does have teeth. You're a big, scary thing. First thing it's going to do is try to bite you. So uh, usually what happens is uh, I recommend people take a thick towel and gently swaddle the bat to get it into a box. And as long as they don't have direct contact, that's fine. And then they can call me and I can uh, either the bat comes to me or I direct them to a a trained wildlife rehabber. We actually have a few more that are trained in uh, bats now than we did a few years ago. So it's great. And um, another... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So with bats in houses, so that's usually primarily happening during the summer months. They're going to those warm attics or outside on your gable vents. And that's because the pups, the bat babies are called pups. Um, They're furless uh, in the first uh, few months of their lives. And they need that extra warmth to kind of stay incubated. And so most of the time you, you don't have any ideas that you have a bat in your house. Uh, usually maybe you see some pile guano that's building up underneath, but most of the time it, they go undetected. But if you do have bats in your house, uh, right now this is called fall uh, migration, fall swarming, and they should have already left and they're moving into the, their winter roost, and they usually don't inhabit um, attics in the winter. The exception is if you're on the coast. Unfortunately, uh, some of those bats down there will stay year-round, 
And uh, we do have wildlife excluders, not exterminators, excluders that can uh, safely create a one-way device where the bats can fly out, but they can't come back in. So this is typically done after pups are able to fly. So they're not being abandoned by their uh, parents, by their mothers. And um, before they're into their uh, winter hibernation, um, so it's less detrimental to them. So this is actually a really good time if you're, on, say, on the coast and you really think that, uh, you know, bats are using your place year-round, you can do excluding devices. And also, if you notice you had bats in the summer but they're gone now, this is the perfect time to get somebody out there to seal up. And they're trying to look at those tiny little cracks that bats can get in. All right, very good. Let's uh, go to the phone lines. We'll talk to Jane in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Jane. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. I am calling about a bathhouse. Where is a good place to put it and to attract the bats to visit it? There's this wonderful place in Star, Mississippi, called Hartwood that makes them, as well as birdhouses and bee houses uh, and duck houses. So uh, I was just wondering where do I pay my bathhouse? Okay, that's a good question. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is uh, just because a bathhouse is advertised for bats does not mean it's necessarily built correctly. Uh, So there are some, say, smaller ones that maybe you get a bat, if you're lucky, that inhabits it, but then it's too small to actually safely protect them from the elements. And could actually, if the bat decides not to move on, can actually lead to their deaths. We have seen that happen. So we do have recommendation. The minimum size a bat house should be is 12 inches wide by 48 uh, 24 inches long. It should be big. Bat houses should be uh, pretty large. And even then, that's the minimum size. So bigger, the better. And usually we recommend them made out of cedar wood, just because cedar wood is naturally bug repellent. And um, you don't necessarily have to paint cedar to keep it uh, long term because you don't want to use treated wood. So treated wood is going to have oils that these bats are going to rub up against, and then they're going to groom themselves. And that can lead to a situation of toxicity so we prefer cedar wood and if you do paint it do it um, a medium to dark but not a black color because they need some uh, sun, solar radiation but not too much and then also bat houses need to have ventilations down here so you um, need to have a ventilation slot in the front and the back so there should be slots and then uh, we prefer Bat houses to be multi-chambered, not just single chambers, so that the bats can have options of moving around within the box. As it gets too warm or too cold, they can move around. And bats houses need to be grooved uh, so that bats can climb on and not use mesh. Mesh used to be pretty prevalent, and there's still some societies that use it. But I have personally seen where a bat house had mesh, and it was not upkept over time, and that mesh comp- uh, collected debris and then was pulling away from the walls, and then that actually can lead to entrapment of bats. Um, so that being said, that's the design of the bat house. So you got to be careful what you buy. Um, most places around here commercially sell bat houses usually are not up to par of what I would recommend. Now, placement of bat houses. Yes, you can put your bat house on your house. And that could be, you know, some places do recommend that. I generally don't. 
because then you still have a human-bat conflict, potentially. Uh, during the summer months, sometimes bat uh, babies get knocked out, and you know, they're next to your house, and if, say, you have a dog or a small child, they can find them. So generally, I uh, recommend you put a bat house, say, if you have several acres, bat house on a pole, and if you have a water source nearby, maybe you have a farm pond, that's a perfect spot for a bat house, is right next to it. Uh, I don't recommend putting bat houses on trees, and the reason why is, one, it shades them out, and they need that warmth, and two, predators will easily figure out where the bats are coming out, and then they'll roost on the branches nearby and just easily pick the bats out before they even know that there's a predator nearby. All right, good question, and, and a great answer, uh, Caitlin. Good, good detailed information there for someone interested in a bat box. And I was going to say, I think Caitlin and I both have recommended before, if you'll look at Bat International's website online, they have some pretty detailed photographs, of, and they repeat everything that Caitlin just said and uh, show you visually so that you can look at your bat house and kind of compare it and be sure. Yeah. And, you know, I've bought some that are decorative, and I use them for decorative things, but uh be sure that, but some of the ones that are decorative and, and really interesting are also appropriately built. Yes. So if the bat house person has looked at um, bat international's guidelines, he might have built you a perfect bat house. Yeah, bat yeah. conservation international does have actual plans if you want to build your own too. It might be a little complicated, but I think if I can do it, somebody else can do it, and I'm not that savvy. <laughs> All right, uh, I think we have our caller, Sarah, back, uh, who called in from Biloxi. Let's try it again. Uh, Sarah, sorry for the phone issues. Go ahead. You're on the air. No problem. I was just asking if um, if bats have moved into my purple martin house, can I leave them there, and will the martins cohabitate with them when they come back in February? I have never heard of a bat using a purple martin house, but that doesn't surprise me. That sounds like something like maybe a big brown would do. And usually the bird's not going to be that tolerant. Um, so it's, I hate to say it's best to sh- shoo the bat out so the birds can use it because purple martins really do need those boxes or those uh, gourds. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Sarah. We've got some open phone lines again. If you'd like to join our bat discussion this morning or if you have a pet question for Dr. Major, uh, you can always email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Major, wondering in all your travels, uh, have you encountered bats? Any bat stories from from your travels? Well, uh, most significant, I guess, was in Nicaragua one time. It was it was a large bat. It was not a and and they do have the uh, it is a problem with livestock. And uh, actually, uh, some of the farmers would uh, set up a put a horse under a tree with a net over it and sit out there all night. And when the vampire bat came to feed on the, take blood from the horse or cow, they would drop the net over it uh, to catch it. Uh, I did actually have one one time came in from a uh, field trip in Nicaragua, and there was a big bat on the bed and basically uh, threw a towel over it and tossed it out the window. It was, it was alive and flew away. So anyway, yes, a few encounters. That's I could imagine after a you know long day out in the field or whatever, coming in and seeing a bat in your bed, that might have been a little bit of a shock. I would imagine. <laughs> I think in the particular house, it was a three-story house that we were staying in, 
and actually they were in the roof somewhere. So this one, I don't know, just didn't make it out. Landed on the bed, but it was easy to take care of and throw, throw one out, and it flew away. So, Caitlin, why do you think people are scared of bats? Oh, uh, because it's unknown. I mean, you have something flying around at night you don't really see, and maybe you have a bug near your face and they swoop nearby and it uh, scares them. Uh, but there's just a history of unknown and a history actually where they were uh, synonymous with uh, demons. You know, there's this history of like bats are unclean, don't touch them, or uh, they. Uh, Related them to mice. Uh, they thought they were flying mice. And, you know, there's a lot of diseases that you could potentially get. I mean, that's, it's, but that's not different than like a pig. You can, there's a lot of zoonotic diseases you can get from a pig, but they don't really have much of a um, bad history. But I think it's just because they're flying at night and you generally don't see them. Most people don't see them as cute and cuddly, unless you're people like me, <laughs> little, fly, uh, little sky puppies. Um, so it's just, a general unknown, but once you get to know them and really learn about how interesting they are, how their adaptations, they're truly extraordinary little critters. Uh, working with bats, I get one of two reactions, and I tell people I work with bats. They think I'm crazy, or and they tell me uh, absurd stories about rabies stuff, and then that's a chance for me to do some educational outreach. Or they think I have the coolest job in the world, and I love those people. And I've had people show me, it's like, oh, I have all these bat stuff at my house, I make bats, and I'm like, what, you make bats, stuffed animal bats? So it's a great uh you know, there's just two two sides of coins. People get afraid of them, or people absolutely love them. We are talking through our hour with Caitlin Cross about bats. Dr. Major hanging on the phone ready for any pet questions that you might have. And there's still time to work in a question or comment. You can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Caitlin Cross. Uh, so let's go to the phone lines. Pamela has called in from Past Christian this morning. Go ahead, Pamela. You're on the air with us. Oh, hi, hi there. Well, way back in 1972, before there was Internet, I rescued a bat from a creek that I lived nearby in Arkansas. And um, well, one thing I wanted to say, it was the softest creature I have ever touched. I just could not believe how incredibly beautiful that its its uh, hair was, um, and in this story, uh, eventually the bat did die because I well I didn't had no there was no animal rescue then and there was no internet and I lived out in the woods and and uh, I accidentally drank after the bat because I was trying to feed it with a straw and the straw got stuck and I sucked up and I realized oh my gosh <laughs> but anyway so when the bat did die I didn't have to drive it my, uh, a few hours to a little rock and have it tested and it was it didn't have rabies um, but any but anyway um, I think they're just incredible and and I did get to rescue one on my front porch here in Pascristan and when I looked at it I thought it was a, a wet oak leaf you know how they turn black sometimes just like a little flat oak leaf but it was a tiny little bat and i was able to get it to people here and they told me later that it did survive and they released it so that was great all right uh, pamela thanks for the call good story there this is creature comforts on mpp think radio visiting today with caitlin cross from the mississippi museum of natural science about bats caitlin we mentioned uh, echolocation do bats make any sounds that humans can hear Yes, they do have a chitter or social call. Um, 
I actually had a recent video posted on the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science where I went into a maternity roost. And, man, they will fuss at you if you're in there. But they're also fussing at everybody else. Hey, get off of me. You're too close to me. Or, uh, hey, maybe come over here. I need a little bit of warmth. We don't know what they actually are communicating, but they sound a little fussy. But, yeah, you, they do have a chittering sound that we can hear. And there is the old saying, blind as a bat. Are bats really blind? No, they are not. They do have reduced eyesight, or the ones here, because they are reliant more on the echolocation to find their food source. But they can see you. Um, and then you have flying foxes, or ones that eat fruit. They're going to have the bigger eyes. But no, no bat here is blind. And uh, so the echolocation, I mean, that's something they're born with. Do the young have to hone that skill at all, or is it innate? That is a very good question. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's really accurately studied that. That's a very good question. Now I'm going to have to go look that up. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, is there anything the public can do to help the, uh, the bat population, the health of the bat population in Mississippi? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We keep seeing all these new developments, all these new developments while we're right next to areas where uh old abandoned shopping store instead of building a new development why don't you renovate what you already have that you know um was created and focus on doing that instead of taking away habitat from critters that you probably don't even know about that's using that um i've seen several acres cut down for I don't even know what purpose right now. More storage facilities, more shopping centers. Do we really need that? Focusing on what you need instead of just saying, hey, this new business is going to cause this guy some money until it eventually closes down, you know? Um, So one thing is reducing habitat loss. If you are fortunate enough to have a lot of acres, which we do have a lot of people in Mississippi that have a lot of acres, family land, you name it, Try to manage that for bats, uh, and you can talk to local foresters uh, about how to do that. There is a bat and forest uh, management plan out there that talks about what you can do. If you have land that has old trees, don't cut those down. They may look like they're dangerous, but that is beneficial for bats. Not just that, but also birds. Our woodpeckers really love those, and our passerine birds all uh, that eat insects, they really are reliant on those dead trees. So just leaving that habitat there for them, you can help bats. Uh, what about um, any kind of maybe uh, resource online or elsewhere that if someone was interested in bats and wanted to try to learn more about? So one is the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. I put some stuff on on our on our website, but also Bat Conservation International. We brought them up before. They have a lot of information about bats and when you name it, there's teacher resources. If you're a teacher, there's also a project EduBat, so E-D-U-B-A-T. They have a lot of activities on there. Uh, if you want to learn more about white nose syndrome, there's a, a whitenosesyndrome.org. It's all in the, on there. All right, and uh, still time as we end the show here to, if you could remind us about Park After Dark, which is coming up uh, tomorrow, Friday, October 28th. Yeah, so Park After Dark is a joint uh, event with the Mississippi Children's Museum and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It is 5.30 to 8.30 tomorrow night. where we have our new trail uh, opened up, Spotter the Otter Trail connecting the two. There'll be treats along there. So I know the Children's Museum's doing a costume contest as they do every year. The playground will be open. If you come to the Natural Science Museum, we have uh, 
really spooked up our uh, space uh, theme this year because we have our uh, traveling space exhibit that's going to be here till the end of the year. So if you come in an alien costume, that's uh, more benefits. I will be there as for the Mississippi Batworker group table. I'll be dressed up as Yoda. So come see me. <laughs> if you have any more questions, I'll be happy to answer. If you just want treats, that's cool too. And you can learn more about bats. There. Oh, yes. All right, that's uh, going to wrap us up today. Just a quick reminder, if you're ever out and about and you see something, uh, an animal, a creature of some sort that you would uh, like to find out more information about, if you'll snap a quick picture of it and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, we'll try to help you figure out what's in your picture. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show was engineered today by Liz Gill, and our call screener was Charles Arnold. For Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Caitlin Cross, I'm Kevin Farrell. Tune in next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.